This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Rutasepetes has built an international reputation for shining a light into the darkest corners of 20th century history and telling the stories of ordinary people resisting extraordinary brutality. Her five novels to date have been published in over 60 countries and 40 languages and all have been recorded as audiobooks read by some of the best narrators in the business. Her latest book, I Must Betray You, transports us back to Romania in 1989. It's a world of state-controlled paranoia in which spies are everywhere and personal freedoms nowhere. With communist regimes crumbling across Europe, 17-year-old Christian Florescu faces an agonising dilemma. Save his ailing grandfather or betray his whole family. And although this is a work of fiction, it like Ruta's previous novels, is firmly founded on meticulously researched fact. Before we hear from Ruta, let's meet her protagonist, Christian, and hear what life was like under the dictatorship of Nikolai Ceausescu. Ocean fish. No meal without fish. The electricity in our building was on. The television health advisory for ocean fish crackled behind closed doors. Since meat wasn't available, we were advised to eat ocean fish. But we didn't have fresh fish, just fish bones to make watery soup. Did that count? I paid little attention to the television. The English travel guide summed it up correctly. Romania has one TV channel and one brand of TV set. The state broadcasts only two hours of bland television per day, mainly propaganda and salutes to Ceausescu. I trudged up the concrete stairs to our top-floor apartment. Life in an apartment block felt like living in a cement chest of drawers, each floor equally divided into boxes of families. I climbed the steps, slapped with the smell of kerosene and unwanted information. First floor, a hungry baby crying. Second floor, a drunken man screaming at his wife. Third floor, a chain pulling to flush a toilet. Fourth floor, a grandpa with leukemia coughing. Just as you could be certain of lack of privacy, you could also be certain that the building administrator reported to the Securitate. After all, the party had a right to know everything. Everything was owned by the party, and the party kept track of everything. Bugs. Bugs all around, lamented Bruno. Phillips inside and outside. Phillips were listening devices and rumored to be everywhere, hidden in walls, telephones, ashtrays. So all families followed the same mantra. At home, we speak in whispers. Eduardo Ballerini, narrating I Must Betray You, written by my guest, Ruta Sepetis. Ruta, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be chatting with you. We've just heard a clip describing some of the privations of Romania in 1989. And those weren't just physical privations. They were also privations of liberty and even the ownership of your own body. Could you take us a little bit further into quite how bad life was back then? Yes, sadly, it was it was really horrific. Um, this is Romania in the 1980s under the dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu. And as you said, this is a world of, of dark enforced obedience um, where your electricity is controlled, your nutrition is controlled. There are ration cards in the 1980s. Some Romanians told me that they had more food during World War II. And women's bodies are controlled by the state. If you're childless, you're taxed. Uh, Ceausescu wanted to increase the population, to increase the workforce of Romania. But there was no food, there was no electricity. So you imagine this really very challenging time period that Romanians were enduring. 
And women were baby farms. They belonged to the state. They had regular degrading fertility checks and they were expected to produce up to 10 children. Well, 10 children uh, would give the woman a title of heroine mother. Uh, and yes, five children, you know, at least five was expected. And again, if you were childless, you were taxed. And, and in researching this red, you know, that was so difficult to listen to testimony from women who said that these makeshift inspectors would come to their place of work to, to check to see if they were pregnant and if they if a pregnancy was detected in some cases they could be tracked to make sure that that pregnancy wasn't terminated and that um, the, the woman was, was maintaining and uplifting you know this was the child that belonged to Romania and uh, and what also struck me is after communism fell in the early 90s we started you know, seeing news stories about orphanages in Romania and the terrible situation with, with the young children, but we didn't have the context to understand why that had happened and, you know, about Ceausescu's tyranny. And so really we only had a partial narrative and I felt that was so unfair that many Romanians um, and Romania as a country may have been judged by these news stories of the orphanages when we didn't have the full picture. And it's not just a world where you have no bodily freedom. You don't even have freedom of thought. And we see this world through the, the prism of 17-year-old Christian who dreams of being a poet and, through our Western eyes, is just a normal teenager. And yet there is no hope of him becoming a poet. His very freedom of thought could land him in grave trouble and actually does. Exactly. And in interviewing people who were young during the time of the revolution, they described it. They said, Ruta, imagine having wings, you know, strapped to your back that could never have the chance of opening. That's what life was like for young people. And that seemed just so incredibly unfair. But yet again, as I was researching, I learned that it was these exact young people who were probably the most brave. As you said, they had no freedom of expression, no intellectual freedom, yet they found a way to speak even though their voices had been extinguished. And I thought that was just brilliant. Now, as you say, you did a huge amount of research and this book is presented as a found manuscript. It is fiction, but these are the words of people you spoke to who, in many cases, still are going through the post-trauma of the repression that they were living under and don't wish to be named. But you're presenting this as a kind of collective testimony through Christian's voice. Yes, whenever I'm um, researching and planning a novel, I have to think about, you know, the, the perspective and the lens through which I'm going to bring this story to the readers. And as I was speaking with people, as with all my books, you know, I feel that when stories and history are underrepresented, the people who experience those stories, they just feel so misunderstood. And, and that's why in many cases, they don't want to speak. They truly don't believe that anyone, an outsider, could understand their story. And so, yes, I decided, okay, well, what if I present this, that this is a, you know, a rebellious teenager and he writes everything down, which of course would have been so incredibly dangerous to keep a journal with your true thoughts and feelings about the regime. And then what if he goes back and he writes a story about it? And that's what's found many years later, this perspective. Um, and I also really love juxtaposition. I love taking, let's say, the young, pure heart of a Romanian teenager and putting it up against this terrible Romanian dictator. I think that, that when we do that, you know, the, the yin and yang sort of illuminate each other. Um, and I always find that, you know, an interesting writing device. And that allowed me to do this here. And part of that juxtaposition is that Christian and the other young people do have access to some Hollywood films that have been smuggled into the country, have been terribly badly dubbed, but they are 
glorious Technicolor. And juxtaposed against this is the awful grey concrete drabness of a Bucharest that was, well, once a rather beautiful city, but was bulldozed by Ceausescu because he wanted to make a tyrannical statement of everything is is equal and and ground down to the very basic. Exactly. And everyone was equal. They were all comrades, which, of course, wasn't the case when you see how Ceausescu himself was living. Um, and, and in order to control the population, he had this police force, the Securitate, and the Securitate recruited informers. And it was very dangerous because there were these glimpses of freedom, as you said, the impact that movies from the West had on the population. One historian told me, Ruta, those movies loaded the guns that eventually took down Ceausescu. At first, there were some Romanians who said that when they saw the movies, they literally thought they were fantasy. All the colors and you, you turn on a faucet and hot water rolls out and there's food everywhere. And then the chatter began that, no, <laughs> this is actually real. This is, you know, the West. And some magazines came through and they started seeing imagery from the West. And imagine that when you're living in this apocalyptic landscape of the lost, this charcoal landscape, and seeing, wait, others don't live like this. Do we have to live like this? You know, and planting those, those seeds, I thought it would be really interesting for a 17-year-old to take that on. Now, you mentioned the secret police, the Securitate, and an estimated one in 50 of the population of 23 million were employed by the Securitate. It was more powerful than the army. And then a staggering up to one-sixth of the population was employed as spies for the Securitate. So you had neighbours and friends and even family members spying on each other, which gives rise to a, a sense of countrywide paranoia. Nobody can trust anybody. Exactly. And think of that atmosphere of constant surveillance and never knowing who might be informing on you. And as you said, Red, a family member. Imagine how painful that is. And that was something that I found that was different about Romania than some of the other, you know, former communist countries or regimes that I've written about, is, is that in other countries, some people had a unity of victimhood. They had a solidarity. They, they, they really felt a sense of community, even in their suffering and in this restricted environment that they lived in. But what Ceausescu did by recruiting people as informers, he stole that. There was no trust. There couldn't be solidarity. And, you know, I, I just still question, what does that do to a population, to generations, to live with that kind of trauma? And mistrust is a form of terror. And it was just hideous, hideous what Ceausescu did. And yet... To an outside world, to you yourself, as, as, as you describe it in an afterword to the book, we saw a very different Romania. They appeared different to the rest of the Eastern Bloc countries. You're exactly right. Um, I'm Lithuanian-American, and, you know, growing up, Lithuania was part of the Soviet Union. Um, they were not independent, and I clearly remember watching the Olympic ceremonies in the 70s where the Romanian team came out during the opening ceremony in their own colors with the word Romania across the back of their uniforms, and I remember thinking... Oh my goodness, how lucky they are. Oh my goodness, wow. And I had no clue, even that the athletes themselves, how they were suffering, how they were being tracked by the Securitate, spied on, manipulated. I had no idea, and I, don't, I think many others didn't either. Now, as we say, you have done extensive research. How willing were people to come forward? They weren't as willing as some of the other projects that I've taken on to research. And, you know, I understand 
When I was researching books that involved uh, Lithuanian characters, I'm Ruta Shepetis in, Lithua in Lithuania, and they, they felt that perhaps I might understand the culture and the country. But here I come, a Lithuanian American from Nashville, Tennessee, read, asking these brave Romanians who endured this dictatorship to revisit this trauma and share it with me. And, and, you know, that took a lot. And so it took quite a few interviews before we could establish a sense of trust. And once I did, then they explained to other people, oh, it's okay to speak to Ruta. And they would often refer me. I think there's someone else you need to speak to. Um, but it always takes time to develop that trust. And of course, near the end of my research, when the pandemic began, I had to transition to Zoom interviews. And that never, that is much more difficult than being in person. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's a little bit like when they were being bugged back in 1989. Everything is being recorded in a room far away from you. Exactly. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot to mention that, that the Securitate, within a matter of nine minutes, could wire someone's apartment. So the window frames, the telephones, the light fixtures, they all had listening devices. Ashtrays in restaurants, they, they were all bugged. You know, there were listening devices everywhere. So yes, of course. Um, imagine how that feels when I go to someone and say, oh, do you mind if I record this interview? <laughs> That's a very different question. And I know that you've said elsewhere that actually some of the contributors still didn't want to be named in the credits at the end of the book. There is still that lingering fear. There is. And, and one of the people uh, that did not want to be named is actually a, a diplomat. And, and he explained, he said, no, I, I, it's very important that you share this history and this story, but I just don't feel comfortable. And he was only 12 years old at the time, but he just still did not have that level of comfort. And that breaks my heart. If we can share these underrepresented parts of history, what if we can allow people to feel comfortable and safe to take ownership of their own story and their own history? Then I think that we can finally make some progress. I, absolutely. And that is very much echoed in the words of Christian's much beloved grandfather, a man who grew up in a Romania that predated Ceausescu and, and because he's dying is still able to speak his mind, that words are power, that you can bear witness with words. And that is, in the end, Christian's legacy. He is able to record his thoughts, even if he can't articulate them in 1989. Exactly. And during my interview process, many of the people who were young during the revolution explained, you must talk to people who had grandparents and great grandparents, because they explained that the elderly population, they had lived during an entirely different time. Their great grandparents had told them that, you know, Bucharest was once a luxury stop on the Orient Express and that there was a different side to life. Some had traveled. They were allowed a passport. Remember, you know, Romanians were not allowed to travel. They were not allowed passports. It was very difficult to leave the country. But this elderly population, if we go back to the juxtaposition, um, we have this very young character with one point of view. And then his older grandfather who in many cases is really the rebel and the renegade. And we don't often think of someone in their 80s, you know, that they're going to be the, the rebels. And, and in this case, they were. And I thought that was really great. Now, the reaction to the book has been fantastic. But I know what really matters to you are the letters and emails that you get from other people who you hadn't spoken to before, who have lived through the repression, who are finally able to unlock their own words. Could you tell us a bit about some of the reaction that you've had from them to I Must Betray You? Definitely. And I, I want to preface this by saying that, you know, um, I have lots of friends who are authors of historical fiction, and they think I'm absolutely crazy that, that I go to such lengths and that it's important that it's you know, authentic, but it's extremely important to me. Uh, I am writing about a time period I did not experience. And when I hear from the true witnesses that they have read the work and looked through my research, that there's nothing that's more important. First, because 
you know, they might help me. Maybe there's a mistake and we can make a correction. But so far, the reactions have been so wonderful. And in Romania, there are young people who are reading the book alongside their parents and their grandparents. So this multi-generational read that's going on, and the book is a bestseller there. And some of them have said, you know, it actually makes sense to have an outsider write this. It's so painful for us that it's easier. Um, and, and we don't judge as much to say, well, who was this person and where were they living? And what? We, can, we can experience it and discuss it as a story. And then maybe it's not so emotionally or politically uh, charged. So, Red, as I told you before, that I interview so many people when I'm researching my books, and then what I try to do is weave those experiences together to create composite characters. And one of the, the nicest aspects is that for this book, I must betray you, I've heard from people that I didn't interview for the book, but they email and they say, this is my story. Who told you my story? This is perfect. This is exactly what I experienced. And so I've I, that makes me, of course, happy. And, and I have been notified of some mistakes in this first edition, small mistakes, but that will be corrected, uh, you know, for the paperback edition. And so I love that. Um, you know, the Romanians are my co-writers on this book. Well, after the break, we will examine some of the other areas of 20th century European history where you have also shone a light into the darkest corners Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. Today, I'm in conversation with Ruta Sepetis. Ruta, it's time to move from Romania in 1989 to Madrid in 1957 and your novel, The Fountains of Silence. And here we're dealing with the dictatorship of General Franco and you take as your starting point a hotel that his regime has constructed to attract investment from abroad, particularly from the United States. And again, this is based in fact. Exactly. It's based in fact. And imagine my surprise when I was researching post-Spanish Civil War period and discovered, you know, the partnership that the United States had with Francisco Franco. And I thought, really? How were we supporting and working with this fascist dictatorship? But, but we were. And when I went into the, the records and started reading, there were some people in Washington, D.C., in the, the memos, who were claiming that bringing United States investment to Spain would help the oppressed Spanish people the most. And then there were other people in the files who were maintaining, well, no, we need a, a position against the Soviets in Europe, and if we open military bases and establish military bases there, it will help us. And so I was really interested to see how that had developed and, and what the history behind it was. And it started a seven-year journey, Red, <laughs> researching what became the Fountains of Silence. And this really is a multimedia book. You present us with photographs, with testimony, with portraits of what is going around. And again, the prism that we see this through is 17-year-old Daniel Matheson, son of an American oil tycoon who has come to the country of his mother's birth full of hope and with a camera. And gradually we see that the picture that he is being presented is not the whole picture. And there are dark secrets lurking at its edges. And isn't that often the case when we are tourists? We're unreliable observers. We travel somewhere on holiday uh, or just, you know, to a different country for business. And even when we arrive at the airport, we're presented this narrative. I live in Nashville, Tennessee. And when you step off the plane, 
there's a guitar player playing country music and it says Music City, USA, home of Jack Daniels Whiskey. You're presented with this narrative, but what lies beyond the frame? And I spoke to some Americans who did travel to Spain during the 50s. There was a, a concentrated effort to bring tourism uh, to Spain. Franco was very elusive, but he decided he was going to work with the Texas oil barons. He was going to work with some big hotels and he was going to work with the Hollywood movies. And I really wondered as, you know, naive Americans were coming to Spain, the land of sunshine and wine, what was the story behind the story? And I wanted to create characters who could express that because history has many angles and there are always many angles to a story. So creating that large cast and as you say, a multimedia aspect, you know, interspersed with news stories and oral history testimonies from the files that allowed me to pull the reader amidst those many angles. Yeah, we as readers are doing the detective work alongside Daniel. We're reading those contemporary news reports. We're looking at the corners of the pictures where the victims are almost off stage, but not quite. Exactly. And the hotel is really a character here in the book. This hotel, the Castellana Hilton, it was the first Hilton hotel opened in Europe. And that surprised me. I mean, it wasn't in Paris or it was opened amidst a dictatorship in Madrid. Um, and the people who were working at the hotel were, were local Spanish people. And as I interviewed some, they explained they didn't even live in Madrid. They lived outside in the slums and they would come in and, and that the appetizer that they were serving to the guests at the Hilton in the lobby cost more than three to four months of their, their salary. And the cameras that these tourists would have around their neck might you know, be six, seven years worth of their salary. And the disparity here, it was just, again, a, an interesting angle. What lies beyond the frame? And so I thought, well, if we have this young guy you know, who has this pure heart and he wants to understand, so we have an American boy and a Spanish girl, and they're desperate to connect and understand each other, but they're fenced by fear and silence and circumstance, you know? How can they bridge those widths between them? That's what I was looking to do with the story. It really does lay bare how the victims of fascism and tyranny are, are drawn into the mechanics that keep that regime going. And even though this is 1957 we're talking about, it felt like something that could be going on just beyond Eastern Europe today. <laughs> Yes, well, because we see the, the mechanics that you speak of, sometimes those are consistent throughout these regimes. And that's why we say, like, to understand, you know, the present, we just need to look to the past. And sadly, it's there. And, and we see these patterns re repeating themselves. And in the case of, of Franco, Franco wanted to create this pure Spanish race. And when I discovered a, a news story that it was estimated that over 200,000 children had been stolen from their birth parents and gifted and sold to fascist families. Um, and so that plays a role as well in the story. Daniel is, is you know, this American from Dallas and he's you know, traveling around the city with his camera in Madrid. And he takes pictures and captures things that he's not supposed to. And he doesn't even really understand what he's seeing. But uh, the secret police force, the not, not, it's not so secret, Guardia Civil, they understand what he's capturing. And they want to keep those secrets in the shadows. And again, you juxtapose his naive hopefulness and the, the burgeoning relationship between him and this Spanish girl with the the dark oppression of the forces of tyranny. Yes, and imagine that this young woman, Anna, that Daniel is falling in love with, comes from such different circumstances. And there's a moment where he is coerced by um, a buddy of his. Oh, you should just, if you like her, you should just go to her house. And, and, and he goes taking, you know, wine and cheese and these gifts and not realizing the conditions that she lives in. And there's this awkward moment where, 
you know, the have and have not come to, to face one another and, and it's heartbreaking. And he realizes quickly, as many of us do, that, that, you know, we have no concept of what other human beings are experiencing. Um, and then there's another character of a, a news reporter and who's also kind of feeding information, uh, an older guy who's sort of mentoring Daniel. And so he sort of helps him through this. Now, the question at the heart of this book is, can silence heal pain or does it just prolong it? And that's something that is central to the title of this novel as well. Can you tell us where the title came from? Yes. So it was interesting. When I embarked upon this project, there were people who said, oh, this is going to be very difficult. After Franco died, you know, Spain adopted what is known as the Pact of Forgetting. They agreed to forget their history. And the story went silent and went dormant. And it's painful. People don't like to talk about it. So that's going to be difficult. Then they were also telling me that during the Spanish Civil War and post-war period, that all of the beautiful fountains in Madrid, they, they went dry. And as they were talking about the young population, I thought about these innocent young people with hopes and dreams who you know, were in the prime of their lives and had every opportunity, but instead were forced to become fountains of silence. And, and what that did to these young people as I was interviewing them and they were sharing the fear that they lived under. Um, one young woman said, well, you know, Ruta, I had a cardboard father. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't understand what that is. And she said, oh, she said, my, my father fought against Franco and was killed. And after Franco came to power, we, we weren't allowed to speak of him or it was very dangerous to even admit that we were related. So we just had a, a cardboard picture of my dad and my mom kept it in her bedside table. And when we wanted to see daddy, we just went and we opened and, and looked at that picture. And she had to remain silent about that for so many years. And still, when I spoke to her, you know, felt not entirely comfortable telling me about her cardboard father. It's a pain that I think a whole generation of children who lost parents in the Second World War would find resonated with them as well. I certainly had a grandfather who, who didn't want to talk about his war memories and the friends and fellow airmen who had not come back from the war. And that's an era that you explore both in your debut, Between Shades of Grey, and in your Carnegie Medal winning novel, Salt to the Sea. Yes, exactly. And, and Salt to the Sea describes the single largest maritime disaster in history. And I think if we asked people, you know, what is that? the largest maritime disaster. They might think it's the Titanic or the Lusitania, but in fact, it is not. Those combined don't even come close to uh, the loss of human life described in Salt to the Sea, which tells the story of winter of 1945, um, of this refugee evacuation, Operation Hannibal, when refugees were trying to flee from the um, advancing troops that were coming, innocent civilians, and uh, so they were evacuating over water. And I mean, there were rowboats, there were dinghies, there were any moving watercraft was commandeered for this evacuation. Well, in port was a German cruise ship, the Wilhelm Gusloff, and it had been used as a hospital ship for five years. It hadn't sailed. And the Germans decided they were going to commandeer that ship. Well, it held 1,400 people. And of course, the priority passengers were, you know, the Nazi officers and, and wounded German soldiers, but they had extra room. So they took all of the furniture off. They emptied the, this entire ship and they decided they were going to take some refugees. And the ship held 1,400 people and read when it sailed in January of 1945 during a snowstorm, it was carrying over 10,000 people. And imagine, here are these passengers, they're dreaming of warmth, of family, of freedom, and waiting in the depths of the Baltic Sea was a Soviet submarine that detected this ship and began to track it. 
And mind you, the German army was very concerned about planes overhead and they you know, were trying to decide, do we sail with our lights off? But how do you protect all that you love from an enemy you cannot see? Here comes this, this sub, torpedoed the ship three times. It sank in less than 60 minutes and over 9,000 people lost their lives. And people haven't heard of the Wilhelm Gustloff. And that is the story that is presented in Salt to the Sea through four young characters. It's a novel that still haunts me and brings me to tears five years after I first read it. And I think you gave voice to those 9,000 victims again and, and finally provided them with the memorial that they never had at the time. You're coming forward in history from the dark days of the Second World War to the dark days of Romania in 1989. How far do you think we need to be from historical events before we can re-examine them in the way that you do? I think for every author, the answer is probably different because if you are a true witness, you can probably write about it quite soon. But if you're like me, where I'm writing the books, but really history is writing the story, I do like a buffer of time of a few decades, at least, you know, let's say 25, 30 years. Because during that time period, other things come to light and we can look at decisions that were made 30 years ago. We can look at viewpoints 30 years ago and from a bit of a different altitude. We're not looking from the inside out, right? Um, it's, it, it, imagine that if you're on the first floor of a building and there's a certain view, whereas if you're on the top of a building and you're seeing down, I feel that with that buffer of time and that different altitude, we see a bigger picture. And to write authentic historical fiction, I do feel I need to see the bigger picture. I'm not sure, for example, when I was writing my book, The Fountains of Silence, um, where we realized, goodness, you know, the United States, they were involved with supporting Franco and the Franco dictatorship to some extent. I'm not so sure I would have found that information just five years after Franco's death. I think it did take a while. Well, after the break, we will discuss some of the narrators who have not just communicated the tragedy of some of these stories, but also much of the joy and hope that their young protagonists bring for the future. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with historical novelist Ruta Sepetis. As I said at the top of the show, Ruta, your novels have been internationally successful. They've been published in 60 countries in over 40 languages. And what's wonderful for people like me who are print disabled is that they are all available as audiobooks in English and in many other languages as well. You have had some amazing narrators, including Eduardo Ballerini, who narrates I Must Betray You and who many of us know from The Sopranos. How great was getting him on board? Oh, I mean, imagine the fan, I'll say the fangirl moment. Um, <laughs> I have been such a big fan of Eduardo's. His audio performances are just so masterful and you can tell that he takes them with such great care uh, and puts so much work into it. And uh, when my audio producer came to me and said, well, um, we're going to go out for auditions and do you have any uh, thoughts? And I said, yeah, uh, my dream, I'll just throw it out there, is, is Eduardo. And she said, he's first on my list. And she said, he's extremely busy, and, but he agreed to do it. Oh my goodness, he agreed to do it. And I was so excited. And then he reached out to me and we, we got to chat. And um, it it's, was really just a, a joy and a dream come true. And to hear him give voice to this underrepresented history and also read, Romanians tell me that his 
Romanian pronunciations uh, in, of the Romanian words in the book are so spot on that they never would have believed that he's not Romanian. <laughs> it is fantastic. And every chapter has its chapter number, both in Romanian and English. So actually, it was, it, it was rather good. I learned to count in Romanian. <laughs> there have also been film and TV versions of others of your books, including Between Shades of Grey, which was released under another name as a film, wasn't it? It was. Um, the film is called Ashes in the Snow. And as you said earlier, uh, some of my audiobooks are in different languages. In the film Ashes in the Snow, we also have multiple language versions of that film. And do you know that Ashes in the Snow became the highest grossing film in the country of Lithuania, beating Avatar, beating Star Wars and Titanic? And, and what the director told me is that because for the first time, Lithuanians were able to see their story reflected on screen. And, you know, great grandparents took their grandchildren and they, and, I mean, multi-generations and it, it stayed in theaters for over um, a year and a half. And uh, I'm so grateful to the translators because translators are, are so much more than just like an interpreter. They cannot be taken for granted. And do you know, their names don't often appear, you know, on the fronts of books or at the outset of a film or of an audio book. And I, I would love to change that. I really would. Um, I really do feel they're, they're co-creators. You are very generous in your crediting of all the people who have worked on all your books. I always really enjoy reading your author's notes that you often provide in your own voice for the audiobooks. And I mean, these really are collaborative works, as you see them, aren't they? I, I do. I really do see it that way, that they're my co-writers, and this is a, a collaboration. But I think that comes from the fact that uh, prior to becoming a novelist, for 22 years, I worked in the music business. And helping songwriters and producers. And that was a very collaborative environment. Um, two or three people getting together to write a song and then we take the song into the studio. We work with an engineer, with a producer, with a mixer, and then you know with a video director and someone you know, to put the tour together. And I loved working in that team. It's amazing what can happen when energies are combined. So I know that writing has this reputation of being a very solitary endeavor which yes, sometimes it is, but I don't think it has to be. And I love the fact that on my books, between you know, research and, and interviews and interpreters and um, consultants, that it's a team sport. Now, you've had phenomenal success. You've been nominated for or won over 40 awards, including the Carnegie Medal, the oldest prize for children's literature. But you're also regarded as a, a crossover novelist. Over here in the UK, we see you as a, a young adult fiction author, I think probably because the majority of your protagonists are in their late teens. In the States, you're regarded as appealing to all age groups. Do you see that distinction yourself? Do you write for a particular audience or do you just write the stories as they present themselves? A, a bit of both, and I don't mean to avoid the question, but I, I write the stories as they present themselves. I do not write down. I don't feel like, oh, well, this you know, is going to be read by students and young adults, so I have to write it in a certain way. Just the opposite. I think young readers are extremely uh, savvy and they're extremely honest and they know right away if you're um, sugarcoating something or taking out some of, of the details and, and they will ask you about it. So I, I write the book as I would want the history and the story presented. However, my dream target reader is that young reader because these are underrepresented stories and it's going to be the young people that carries our fading history forward into the future and so if we can give these stories to young readers that's how we know that they will endure and they will no longer be hidden history but i feel really fortunate that 
parents and grandparents read my books alongside their teenagers. That's great. Now, that doesn't happen in all countries. In Italy, I am only an adult author. Um, and in fact, in Italy, my books are marketed as historical romance. <laughs> if you can imagine, <laughs> stories of Stalin and Hitler, but it's, they're marketed as historical romance, um, which I find quite funny. But, um, and in certain countries, also in Japan, my books are only published for uh, adults. But really, the book belongs to the reader, doesn't it? It's up to the reader to determine the value, not for the author to, you know, to sort of explain it. So I'm grateful for any reader and anyone who discovers my books. And I think we can really hear your passion about the power of literature to foster global awareness and connectivity and heal division. And you've certainly used your success to act as a platform to, to spread that knowledge. I know you've presented to the European Parliament, you've presented to NATO and also at the US Capitol and embassies around the world. And you are the only author I have ever met who has featured on a postage stamp. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit more about how that came about? Certainly. Um, and and you're, you're correct. I'm really passionate about the fact that freedom is fragile. And we find context for the present in the past. And if we don't understand history, then we might not fully understand why something is happening or how something is happening to draw that parallel, to give us guidance of how to move forward. And so I do, I, I go on very lengthy tours speaking for diplomatic events, for school events, for, you know, library events. And um, the country of Lithuania was creating a postage stamp series of Lithuanians that they felt had contributed to different areas, whether it was art or music or culture or literature. And, th and they chose to, to feature me in that postage stamp series. And imagine you know, for my father who had to flee from Lithuania when he was just a small boy and spent nine years in refugee camps dreaming that, you know, Lithuania would one day be free to see his daughter on a postage stamp. It's amazing. <laughs> well, Ruta, I could talk to you all afternoon. I haven't even asked you about your latest book, but I know I'll have to get you back on to a future show to discuss that because time is against us. But after the next break, I hope you will stay with us just a little bit longer to share some of the books that have inspired you as an author in the books of your life. I would love to. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. Now, let's return to my guest this week, Ruta Sepetis, to hear about some of the books that have inspired her as an author. Ruta, would you like to begin by telling us about a book that you read as a youth that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? I still have that very book on my shelf today, um, the original book, James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. When I discovered that story and this young character uh, who found this community and these friends, it made the world less lonely for me. So that was a, a game changer. And it not only inspired me as a reader to, to seek out more stories, but it inspired me to become a writer. I thought, oh, what if I could write a story that makes the world less lonely for someone? And I was such a young girl at that time, but, uh, but I took it quite seriously. <laughs> and is there a book that you'd like to curl up with and reread on a rainy day? Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Oh, that is the best rainy day stormy book. If you, if you have not read Rebecca, you must run to the bookshop or to your library. It is, I would say, a Victorian, gothic, I don't want to give too much away, a suspense novel of a young woman who is the, the young bride of, um, of a man who, who lost his, his previous wife, and she moves into uh, this grand, grand home. And odd things inexplicable things begin happening 
Is it her mind or is it the house? Is it the husband? Is it, um, oh, it just sucks you in. It really brings you to the page and it won't let go. That's a fabulous choice. And I think I'd join you on that rainy day with my <laughs> audiobook copy. And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? There's a wonderful book that has won many awards in the States. It's called Late Migrations by Margaret Renkel. And it's a, a compilation of essays on how our life and our, our heart and our head change as we age in a really wonderful way. It's about life experience and the miraculous nature of you know, the, human, the human experience. And she brings in parallels of nature and weather uh, combined to sort of illustrate our, our human experience. And I found it very beautiful and thought-provoking. Ruta Sapetis, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading and the stories and inspirations behind some of your own wonderful and very moving stories with us today. And I hope you'll come back in the future to share future stories with us. Oh, I would love to. I love chatting with you, Red. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk, not, not just about myself as a writer, more so about these hidden parts of history that I'm so anxious for people to discover and uncover. It's time to turn the page on this chapter of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Ruta Sepetis, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.